You're listening to OEA Grow, a member-led production of the Oregon Education Association and a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. OEA Grow is by members for members. In Season 5, members discuss behavior with Alexis Hennessy. Hello and welcome back. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Uh, this week, our guest is Sarah Rodman. She is a first grade teacher in Eugene. Welcome, Sarah. Did you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Tell our listeners a little bit about what you do. Sure. Um, my name is Sarah. I teach in Eugene. I'm um, in first grade right now. It's my 10th year in first grade, my ter- 13th year as a classroom teacher. I've been working in school since 2001. Um, I also teach for OEA. I teach classes on mindfulness. Um, and some of my years I was a substitute. And so that was uh, really beneficial for what we're going to talk about today, which is behavior and classroom management. Love it. I love it. And I love that you've been in first grade for so long. That's amazing. I feel like some people um, really just find like a, an age group they're super passionate about and that passion shows and then they they get to stay and and others kind of have to explore a little bit of the the elementary age group a little bit before they find that pocket that really is um who they are as an educator so that's that's so cool that first grade is is your jam um so yeah behavior right like within our classrooms i've had a number of podcast guests this season who are in a variety of different roles some district level folks some high school level folks um, and some elementary level folks and i'd love to hear kind of just your initial take on how is behavior impacting your general education first grade classroom you know in eugene and obviously not not necessarily specifics about your current classroom right now, but, um, but you know, what does that look like for the average kind of first grade or early elementary teacher? Well, first, I just want to say I, I'm not an expert. I just, um, I'm a teacher and, and it's my 13th year as a classroom teacher. And the reason why I sign up for these podcasts is because I think when we share, um, you know, uh, we all learn from each other and I know I love listening to podcasts. And so, that's why I signed up today. And I think if you're going to be a classroom teacher, you have to have some some knowledge of behavior. You have to have some knowledge of classroom management or you're not mm-hmm. going to start um, because the class sizes are huge in our state. Um, I've had classrooms of 30 students um, up until 2020. Um, wow. The pandemic was awful, right? But it was great because the class sizes went down. I had lower mm-hmm. kids on Zoom. I had hybrid. I got to teach 12 kids during hybrid. Um, Wasn't that so ama- like oddly amazing? I had 24 students last year for a month. Um, now I'm back up to 27. I'm not up to 30. And we have a life skills program at our school. So then when the life skill kids join us for part of the day, then the classroom can get up to 31, 32. Mm-hmm. And then you have the life skills aid, and then I have my educational assistant. So then you're looking at like 35, almost 40 people in the classroom. In a space. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. yeah. I think the number one thing is um, you have to have a student-teacher relationship. That's the number one secret to classroom management and and behavior is you've got to form that class student-teacher relationship. Um, you got to form that rapport. And you because if they 
respect you and and like you and enjoy school, then they're going to come to school in the mood for learning, in the mood to be respectful to you and to classmates. And so I think that's number one. Yeah. I think that ties to something you said too, which is like, as the number of adults increases in the space, that actually becomes more difficult. So I think a lot of times people think like, more adults, more better, right? Like add more, add more adult bodies to this problem. That's got to be the solution. Um, but actually, it's a little counterintuitive. But more adults can often actually make it more difficult. Those relationships are not there, or there's differing relationships with each of the adults in the classroom, differing styles, different levels of rapport and respect between, you know, dyads between students and and adults, and that actually can complicate how kind of structure and safety feel in the classroom for our learners. And and what we know is that kids kids do best when they feel safe, right? And I think that um, safe can be interpreted in any number of ways, but building classroom community, that respect, that rapport, that cohesive community is really crucial to kids feeling safe. And so I guess I'm wondering, how do you set that up in your classroom? How do you build rapport and community? You know, uh, many of us who have been in the field long enough know about the first 30 days of school, right? <laughs> so we've probably all read um, Henry Wong's book. So, um, but how, what do you do to help establish that rapport and that respect? I imagine that's in the early days of your classroom kind of when you when you return in the fall. Is that true? Yes. And um, my first grade team, you know, we spend the whole first week or two just getting to like do getting to know you activities. So like icebreakers, um, I read, I always read how full is your bucket. We teach zones of regulation. We show them the break spots in the classroom. We have um, hourglass timers for the break spots. Um, yeah, you really want to start strong. And then, of course, the other part of the first uh, few weeks of school is you got to teach them the routines, um, get them used to um, the classroom environment, the parts of the classroom, um, the noise level expectations throughout the day. Um, yeah. And so it sounds I like there's a lot of front loading, right? There's a lot of front loading of like, yeah. I, as your teacher, am expecting that at some point during your tenure with me, you are going to have some emotions, like just setting that as a baseline for the kid, um, for the kids that you have in front of you. And so really front loading when that occurs for you and just yeah. accepting it as, as normal, accepting it as a standard part of a classroom community, like when emotions occur for you, here are the tools that are embedded into our classroom for all learners um, to access and use. And here's how we use them. That's kind of what I heard you say in that back to school was like the where, the how, the when, and the, and the, what the normalcy of that is that this is okay. And this is just part of how we function in first grade. Yeah. Yeah. And zones of regulation is so awesome because, you know, I wish I would have had it way back when, when I first started Mm -hmm. teaching, you're teaching it's social emotional learning. You're teaching the kids to name their emotions, become self-aware Um, and then problem solve, what am I going to do about it? When I'm in the red zone, when I'm angry and I don't want to be around people, I'm going to notice it. I'm going to verbalize it to my teacher and then I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to say, can I take a break? Um, Mm -hmm. and then at the break spot, you know, we have the hourglass timer. I have a beanbag chair. I have the other one kind of like at a student desk and it's right by the Mm -hmm. turtle tank because we have a classroom pet. So the idea is sit there and you watch the turtle swim in the water and you relax. And, you know, I go crazy at the Target dollar spot and I buy (laughs) Play-Doh, glitter Play-Doh, 
They love yeah. those. Oh gosh, what are the the poppets? Is that what the they're poppets. called? <laughs> poppets. You know, we have a rainbow poppet. You know, I have a dinosaur poppet. Um, <laughs> so you know, and the it's sometimes the, it's the little things in life. You know, it's like the poppet. I was gonna say, poppet. it sounds like quite the corner. I kind of want to go hang out with the turtle and like watch the turtle and play on a poppet. So it sounds very welcoming, and I'm not even in your space. <laughs> Um, you know, what I heard you say in that, in that, um, explanation of kind of how you use zones, uh, was twofold. One, which is that like, I hear you saying you're honoring the kids' emotions, right? That no matter where they are, I heard you say like, oh, I'm red zone and here's what I need. I need to be away from these people for a little while. And I think that's, that's often a misstep. I think that somewhere in society and teaching in, you know, teachers being held accountable for academic progress and all these things that we we somehow missed or misstepped on um, honoring kids' emotions wherever they are. There seems to be this misunderstanding about zones or just about emotions. It's like, you, you got to get back to green zone. Green zone is the good zone. You got to be in green zone. You got to be ready to learn. And I think it's really powerful when teachers are able to embed in their classroom that like, no, green zone means I'm ready to learn. And I can experience all of these other zones and all of them are acceptable and all of them are honored and valued within our classroom space. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I heard you then say is like, it's the action I take within that zone. And so then it's talking about like within the red zone, here are the expected or acceptable ways to manage myself versus the unexpected or less kind of pro-social ways to handle that red zone feeling. But I didn't at all hear you say like, well, okay, figure out how to get back to green zone. I just heard you say like, okay, what's the actionable step you're going to take in that red zone? Um, Is that how you communicate it to your learners or how do you build that to your learners that makes them kind of feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have all of these zones at some point. And how do you normalize each of the zones for them or build it into what you're teaching across your day? Um, I think, you know, there's all this pressure on teachers, you know, are you teach doing emo- social emotional learning? What is the curriculum, um, you know, you're using? What time of day are you doing it? Um, mm-hmm. And you know what I realized? I was watching this um, Instagram you know, posts from a teacher and something about it made me realize, you know what? It's not the curriculum. It's the student teacher relationship. And like, Mm -hmm. it's just those little moments throughout the day. It's listening to kids' stories. It's looking them in the eye, you know, that's Mm -hmm. social emotional learning is just like having a rapport. Um, It's not about the curriculum and it's, it, it's these little moments that come up you know, and it's stopping when somebody says something really powerful. Um, I do. The curriculum for, I was going to say the curriculum for me is really just building vocabulary, right? So whether it's zones of regulation, whether it's, um, you know, flexible brain, whether regardless of what curriculum you're using, you're really just using it as the base for building that communication, building the vocabulary and the the modalities for even sharing what my body feels like, right? Because so much of zones is even just saying like, what is that feeling in my body? How do I identify it? How do I name it? What do these funky names? I mean, what does angsty mean? What is frustrated mean? Our little learners, our little humans don't necessarily know what those um, even feeling words mean. So really just building, just like we do in, in language arts, just like we do in math, we build that vocabulary up through our curriculum, through our lessons. But we have to really 
show them how it's applicable throughout their day. And that's what I'm hearing you say is like, yeah, the lessons matter. We have to teach them the words and the sentence structures and the the communication partnering. But really, it's those moments throughout the day where we get an opportunity to demonstrate and model and reinforce it for them that are what actually build the skills for our learners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like, and kids are amazing. You know, it's it's the comments they say after a read aloud. <laughs> Every year I slowly read The Boy, The Mole, The Horse. Do you know that book? Yeah, I do, um, I do. What a great read. And it's a, it's a beautiful book. It's for all ages. Um, I read it very slowly because each page there's, there's an amazing lesson. And yeah. there was a girl in my class last year and we were – discussing, usually I'll do like a reader response after reading a few of the pages of that book. Um, and it will take us like a month or two weeks to get through that book because there's so much information and lessons in there. And there was a girl who raised her hand and she talked about rainbow feelings. And I had never heard that term, but it was, oh, it's with so the green zone and the yellow zone at the same time. I saw her walking um, outside my classroom and I stopped her and I said, Giovanna, I talked about um, what you said last year, rainbow feelings. And she got this big smile. And I think she said it because every morning I'm a French immersion language um, teacher. I teach at immersion school. And every morning we start with classroom meeting. Um, we, we read, we did a training years ago. And um, so classroom meetings are a big part of. Uh, yeah. Love it. Classes. And it's like, that's how we start every day. We do, I do attendance. Um, we sit down in a circle. We all look at each other, right? The power of the circle, the power of eye contact, especially post-pandemic where we're getting the masks off and we're seeing faces again. Um, and then I um, listen to them, you know, and I really try to sit, be still, look at them, listen to each of the, you know, 27 kids respond to, how are you doing? And um, yeah, and I think one day she said, you know, it's rainbow feelings today. I'm feeling all the feelings. And we also, how that happens in a day, right? Is like, mm-hmm. you know, you can start yeah, off. roller coaster. Yeah, yeah. It can be real, real big peaks or it can just be a little, a little low roller coaster. And yeah, yeah. day to day, for sure. You know, I'm yeah. hearing you say a lot. I'm hearing you talk about a lot of these ways in which you provide praise to your learners for using this emotional vocabulary for advocating for their needs. But um, are there other ways, you know, kind of I heard you say how you set the stage, but then what are some of the other kind of general supports that are available to all of your learners and structures within your classroom that you use to really reinforce and, and um, account for behavior that may occur in your classroom? Um, so we have PBIS at our school, um, mm-hmm. and it's great because it has, um, you know, positive uh, praise systems, and then it has documentation for when incidents occur. And then we have our school counselor who inputs all that into the computer, which is mm-hmm. really important data for us to look at, especially when we have meetings Absolutely. with um, certain parents about about their kids, if, you know, if we need to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so at our school, we have these little purple slips of paper that are called chapeau, and it's where you get one. And chapeau means um, hat in French. I'm not really sure why we why we call them chapeau, but maybe it's okay. kind of like hats off to you for doing hats a good job. Yeah, that's sweet. I love that. It's been a part of the school since 2010 when I started volunteering there, maybe before. Okay. Um, 
And it's, you get a purple slip of paper, a chapeau, if you're following one of the school rules, be respectful, be responsible, be safe. And there's Mm -hmm. even a chance for me to check, I put their name and then I check off school rule. And then teacher next door to me, the other first grade teacher, she came up with this really cool thing because we've done all sorts of things with the chapeaus over the year. And she came up with this thing where she's like, well, let's have them do some math. And we put all the purple slips, the kids have to turn them into a hat. And then at the end of the day, we have a mathematician, a, a, a math person go, that's one of the class jobs. They go and count how many, how many purple chapeau we got that day. And for every 10, that's a class point. So we also have class points. Oh, that's cool. So there's like a group contingency there around how we can be part of a community as well. Yeah. So lots of positives. Um, I also started this thing this year. This is new. Um, I don't know how I came up with it. Sometimes you just have these brainstorms. I have a a pretty exciting cohort this year. And um, I just, when that happens, sometimes it's like, okay, let's just focus on the positive, focus on the positive. And so I came up with this thing called shining stars where I'm like really trying to focus on the positive and like who was a shining mm-hmm. star. And then in French it's étoile brillante. And then I found some like purple glittery stars at office max. And then I, and then while they're like eating their snack, I'll talk about um, who was the shining star today. And usually it's like three kids per day. And then mm-hmm. I love to do stories of like kindness um, when I saw someone being kind to another person and I'll, you know, and I'll kind of say it as a story, like, uh, and sometimes I'll do like a guess who, and then I can see if the kid recognizes that I'm talking about them in their eyes. Um, yeah. you well, know, we do seesaw as a, uh, yep. still the, as our iPad station. And I, I was listening to some seesaws and these kids, they write, they're not really kids that did online learning. So they're not that good at seesaw yeah. computer to my COVID kids. Those those well-versed COVID learners. (laughs) Yeah. And um, so they're new to it. So, and I know it's hard for them to figure it out and stuff. And some kids are overwhelmed, you know, and it's the beginning of the year. And I could hear this boy whispering to this girl because she was trying to leave me an audio in French on her Seesaw page where you can add audio. And I could hear this boy whispering saying, um, you know, Josephine, you know, say this, say that. And he was trying, he was like trying coaching, to help coaching her. And, and I could hear it in the background. And so then I'll ask the kids like, Hey, can I play that? You know, I always yeah. ask for, and then I yeah. played it on the screen and they could hear the audio. So I love yeah. things like that. Cause that's what you want. How do you, kindness. how do you use that tool to highlight kids who are maybe struggling to meet some of those expectations more regularly or, or struggling to regulate themselves emotionally? Like are those tools that you then try to find moments to highlight them and bring out those moments of kindness? Or, you know, it sounds like you have a, a wonderful structure within your classroom for like those tier one, those really general whole class type supports that really build that community. But when you start thinking about some of the behaviors that you see that are a little trickier, where you have to program a little bit more specifically in what ways do you build that into what you have in that kind of whole class? And then are there additional layers to that that you add for some of those kids who are needing that extra handholding? Um, yeah, I think every kid's different and you have to look at each kid differently and what do they need? You know, what works with them? 
And I really do try to make sure I'm praising everyone. Yeah. You don't want to be praising the same kid all day or the same five kids that raise their hand. The easy all the target time. kid who does all of the rule following. Yeah. You want to think about everybody. And you know what I also think about is the quiet kids. Mm-hmm. Um, it, because Sometimes I was one of the trickiest. Kids. Yeah. Well, and they just kind of are under the radar. They don't yeah. share that much. And I was having a conversation with um, another podcast guest saying like, actually, the quiet kids are the ones that 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 guest was more concerned about because they're the ones that are so compliant. They meet every rule. They meet every expectation they hand in. But they're the ones that then have these often really big, um, you know, things they share in one setting, one time, you know, or or the withdrawal and the 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 fawning response is um is really big. It's really it's really impactful. Um, but it's it's easier to overlook as a teacher or as a professional working in schools because it's not a disruptive behavior. So it's disruptive mm-hmm. internally to that person, but it's not outwardly disruptive. So it's a little harder to notice sometimes if you're not actively paying attention to those quieter kids. So I love yeah. that you've highlighted that. And I was one of those kids, you know, I can remember being in elementary school and being quiet and shy and I didn't get that much attention from the teacher because I wasn't like, you know, doing any extreme behaviors that needed correcting. And then I wasn't raising my hand. And so we do a lot of teachers do this, but we have name sticks, um, you know, on the popsicle sticks, you write their names. Yeah. And they're in Good old research around equality of calling on kids. <laughs> I love it. So you want to make sure to always use that and not do raised yeah. hand. Um, you know, I mean, of course there's a time and place for doing raised hands, but also, like maybe parts of my day, I'll do raised hands, like maybe during math time when we're doing the math slides, the math lesson. But then I'll, after I get through the five kids that always raise their hands, you know, and those are the choo choo trains, right? The engines that get you through the day. I'll say something like, gosh, I really don't think I have a class of five. I think I have a class of yeah. 27 kids. And, I, and I'll say something like, I really want to hear from everybody. And then you'll yeah. see some kids get brave and start raising their hands. Yeah. I was going to say, I feel like those first, those first weeks of school are a really good time to kind of informally or formally, you know, data collect on who is raising their hands. Who in that first like six weeks of school have you not seen raise their hand but one time, right? Or only when forcibly kind of like, okay, well, the whole class has to talk, right? Because those are the kids, the ones who kind of slip through the cracks, right? The ones who are like, they have the information when you talk to them quietly or independently, it's often there, but they're not going to raise their hand. They're not going to offer to come up to the front of class. They're not going to offer to, you know, whatever it is. And those are the ones I often think we need to spend a little bit more time kind of focusing on and just watching and making sure that we're not seeing any of those kind of withdrawal behaviors. Um, so I love that you you highlight that in the way that you even, um, <clears throat> you know, name call for, for opportunities. Um, so then what with those kids, either the really quiet ones, the ones who are kind of pulling back and, and, and keep into themselves or the, the more disruptive behaviors, what's your next step? Who do you collaborate with? You know, classroom teachers are amazing, right? They handle all the things all day by themselves or with an educational assistant. You know, it's a very, um, I, it can be an island unto yourself sometimes because you walk in the door and you've got those kids in front of you and then they're there, they're there for the day, right? And you, you barely get a chance to go to the bathroom. Um, so what do you do when you have those kids who you're, you're finding yourself saying, you know what, I either know what to do with this kid, but I don't have the capacity to do it within the larger like context of 30 kids or, 
you know, I've, I've gone through my bag of tricks. I feel like I've, I've reached out, you know, to the resources I have and I'm running out of options and I feel like I'm not being super successful with this kid. I need, I need that next level of thought process here or think partner or, or options. What are your steps as a classroom teacher and who do you collaborate with? Um, I think talking with other teachers, um, talking, I, I get really great information by going and having lunch with the kindergarten teachers, the ones who taught them last year, right? For oh, nine. Fun, yeah. Um, and I, you know, I did that maybe last month. I had, I just, I, I don't often eat in the lunchroom just because I need quiet during my lunch break, but I did go in there, I think, cause it was smoky that day, who knows. And I did have a great conversation with the, one of the kindergarten teachers, you know, about some kids that I was really kind of stuck on. And then I mm-hmm. would ask her, well, what was it like last year for that child? And then I'll ask like, what worked? Did you see this? What did you do when the kid did this? And, um, mm-hmm. those, those conversations can be very important. Um, sure. yeah. Uh, and yeah, talking to the educational assistant, cause realizing we're all humans and we're mm-hmm. all have our personalities and there's going to be kids that um, really enjoy me as a teacher. And then there's going to ki- be kids who prefer like their kindergarten teacher or the second grade teacher just because yeah. of the personalities coming personalities together. Personalities are a real thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's just life. And, um, you know, there's going to be kids who who prefer my educational assistant to me because of personalities. And also my sure. educational assistant is way more fun because he does recess duty. So it's like, I'm I mean, educational assistants make the world go round, right? Like, yes, yeah. teachers matter. And that, for all those teachers listening, I love you. You're wonderful. But like, if you have an educational assistant, recognize that they are the absolute pillar of schools, right? We, we couldn't do the work that we do without the support from all of these support professionals. And so for sure, utilizing them. them. And they're not paid enough. And the turnover no, is never. because yeah. of that. And um, yeah, I, they, they are dealing with sometimes the incidents and the behaviors and, um, and yes, they're, they're so important and I have so much respect for them and they were for huge sure. pandemic learning. They were absolutely. They were well, and let's point out too, those educational assistants may have been through multiple teachers classrooms and may say to you, you know, I knew this kid when, and here's something that worked for them in this other classroom, or here's a structure that worked for them when we were teaching writing in this other classroom. What do you think about this? So um, they, they may not have always the formal training in curriculum design or, you know, instructional theories, but they do have the knowledge of the kids in the community and the exposure to different structures and classrooms throughout a building or a district. Yeah. Yeah. That's such an I- asset. Going back to what you said about um, making sure all kids have a voice and what are you doing to make sure you hear from those kids that are super quiet. Um, I think things that we can do is using um, your educational assistant time and your and parent volunteers. Parents are allowed back in the classroom to run small groups, mm-hmm. um, small groups um, during three parts of my day and the kids really love it. And, yeah. and when they are like five kids in front of me instead of 27 kids in front of me and I can really form a bond and a relationship and then they learn better. Um, It's such a nice touch point too, right? To have a little moment of personal connection in that small group with each of those five kids. And I'll check in with them before we start the group time and I'll say like, how's everybody doing today? Because maybe Mm -hmm. they're not going to share that with me at whole group time, but they will say it at small group. 
Um, yeah. And I think another thing that's really powerful is uh, thinking about your seat chart and making sure you change it often. So I try to do it every um, two months. And the seat chart is so powerful. We sat down um, last week. Um, we had like 20 minutes in between parent-teacher conferences. I work part-time and I sat down with my partner and we made a new seat chart. And you know what we did? We said, who's sitting in the back that needs to be in the front? Who's sitting in the back that's really quiet? And then we move those kids to the front. And now it's like, I, I, there's this really quiet girl and she's now like front and center, <laughs> you know, and it's like so good to see her up in the front of the room. Um, and friendships form from the seat chart. The seat chart is really powerful um, because you can see these really beautiful friendships form because they're sitting next to each other six hours a day, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's really I think cool. it's also really important to notice which partnerships don't work, right? Which kids shuts down when they're seated next to a certain type of kid or or a certain group of kids, that kind of thing. And and how do we notice how those behaviors within kids and their shift in their ability to regulate or be actively engaged when they're in certain areas of the classroom or when they're next to certain types of learners? Um, so that's that's a really great reminder for a lot of our teachers. You know, a lot of the tips I'm hearing you give are are really great tips for a lot of our pre-service and new service teachers. And I always like to bring out in my discussion with podcast guests, you know, where did you get this information, right? How, how are you as good at this as you are? And I say that knowing that even 13 years into your career, I'm sure there's plenty of learning left to be done. I heard you say, you know, I go and I talk to the kindergarten teachers and I collaborate. So I don't think any of us ever think that we have learned at all. There's always something new. But, you know, I think that there's this really high bar for a lot of our new teachers and pre-service teachers to just know how to run a classroom, know how to do these things. And if I'm being honest, I don't think our teacher prep programs do much more than kind of general classroom management. They just either don't have time or it's not, you know, built into to the, the series of um, coursework. And so really where most people get a lot of that learning is in their student teaching, right? With whoever they're, they're assigned to. And that can be someone who has great and expansive classroom management, um, and behavior management skills. And it can be someone who's good at running their classroom, but maybe just doesn't have the expansive knowledge. So how did you develop those skills and where, where do you tend to find more resources or, or what do you like to point colleagues to if they come and they ask you, um, I think I sign up for trainings. Uh, I was telling you about a training before we started podcasting that I did back in 2006. Right now I just signed up for a new training called Conscious Discipline. Yeah. Um, talk with teachers. You think about who, you know, when you're on a staff, each teacher is known for something, right? That it, we're, all, we're all good in different ways. And so um, there have been years when I'm really struggling um, with a group of kids and I'll go and just, there's a teacher at our school that has really good behavior management skills. She's, she's got a very different style than me, but she has an amazing setup. And so I would just go in her room and like, listen, listen to her, give me tips. And she Mm -hmm. gave some really good tips about just like classroom setup, having numbered, um, sit spots for circle time, having numbered Mm -hmm. sit spots for rug time, having numbered spots for the long. There's like structures that really just build in that that ease yeah. and procedure and consistency for the kids. I think experience is another thing, right? I mean, I've been in classrooms since 2001. You learn with time. I mean, pretty much 99% of what I do that's good is from experience. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, I don't know if I remember that much from my days in college, you know, studying education yeah. 
know from my days um, getting my master's degree, I, I don't know if I could sit here and tell you the classes I took or what I learned. I, I don't know. I learned mostly from just the job <laughs> and yeah. the challenges yeah. that I've been faced. Um, observing. I, think too, taking, I was going to say taking some of those tips and, and going outside of education, even looking at mental health pieces, looking at behavior pieces, looking at those things and kind of embedding them into your practice as a classroom teacher is kind of what I'm hearing you say that you've taken these little bite-sized pieces as opposed to like one curriculum classroom management style, right? Like this is how I do things, but kind of little bites from different trainings or people or experiences you've had and kind of meshed them into one cohesive style, it sounds like. Yeah. And when you're young, right, you can like look up to certain teachers and be like, oh, I should be like her or him. And it's like, don't do that. Be you, you know, like I remember Mm -hmm. I went to this one training and this woman was wonderful and she gave a great training. But I felt like at the end of it, she was like, oh, when you do read aloud, she should do this. And it kind of annoyed me because it's like, well, all need to be exactly like you. <laughs> like she was yeah, going to match your personality and your style. Otherwise it's, it's not genuine. Right. Yeah. And so I think, and like having confidence to believing in yourself, you know, I do a lot of affirmations with myself, with my students and, um, and yeah, just observing teachers and, and bringing what you like and then what you don't like, leave it behind because that's not for you and, and don't try to be something you aren't. And then also, um, now that the schools have counselors and behavior specialists, um, we didn't used to have that. And now we yeah. do. Um, yeah. And we have a new teacher on staff. And you know what she did? And I thought this was really great because I don't know if I've been this good about this. But she, on one of our first days of work, she grabbed this behavior specialist to have a conversation. And then she, she knew about who, who needed extra supports. And then she sat there and she just quizzed him because he had worked with them for nine months yeah. and what works, what doesn't work for each of those five kids. And it was such a powerful conversation. And, um, I thought, oh my gosh, she's so smart. And, um, and it, it's valuable information because, you know, honoring collaboration the- is key, right? We yeah, might be and- alone in our classroom, but we're not alone in the work. Right. Yeah. And honor the people who have taught the students before you, you know, and yeah, go talk to them. Um, Yeah, I think that piece is so powerful. And I want to hold that like, you don't have to reinvent the wheel every year. It's there's not some expectation that you're going to do things better or different or, or, you know, to a higher standard build off of what someone before you has done, right? So if the kid, if you're, if you're a kindergarten teacher, obviously kudos to you because you get them all fresh unless you have a pre-K building, Um, but you get them all fresh and you're the one doing all the discovering, but uh, and we couldn't do this work without our, our kinder folks who pass information along to us. But as we pass kids along, like, don't reinvent the wheel. Use what works and then add new things to it, right? And so that collaboration piece, I think, is sometimes hard for educators to – I think there's a stigma associated with, like, well, I have to know what I do. I'm supposed to be the specialist in my classroom. I have to be able to do this by myself. And really, collaboration is just such a powerful tool that no one should be alone in doing this work, particularly with our learners who demonstrate behavior as communication to us that something is just not right in their world, whether it's our style or their needs being met or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think for veteran teachers, it's just making sure you're approachable. Like don't let your ego, I don't know, get too much of mm-hmm. you. Make sure you're approachable to those yeah. teachers that are brand new because you don't want to intimidate them. 
and make them think like that you're an expert and you know everything because then they're not going to come to you with questions. And I've definitely worked in buildings like that where people can have big egos and and not be very approachable. And sometimes I'll go to new teachers when they join uh, a school where I'm working and I'll kind of say like, hey, these are the people you should go to to ask for questions. I kind of tell them who's approachable and who's not going to judge them or gossip about them. Um, Yeah. yeah. I mean, sharing, right. We got to, we got to build up the confidence of those, of those new teachers and new community members. They might not even be a new teacher, maybe just new to our community, but Sarah, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you. I I think I could talk with you all afternoon. Um, Obviously such a wealth of information and and I love hearing about your classroom. Um, In these last moments, is there anything you, you really just wish to share with any of the podcast listeners, um, a powerful takeaway or a moment or something you just feel like didn't come up in our conversation? I think the last thing I'll say is read the room. Sometimes I'll get a challenging group and I'll sit down and I'll brainstorm and I try to focus on the positive what worked. So I think every group is different. And so sometimes you got to read the room and you got to sit down after school. And I use like the notes app or the Evernote nap, especially if it was a bad day (laughs) and I'll write went well and I'll make a list of what parts of the day worked, what activities worked those kids. And that has helped me over the years, especially when I have a challenging group and I'll write Such down read aloud went well, choice time went well, yeah. you know, the movie talk today went well. And you can also great. make a list of what didn't go well and think about why. Yeah, The most reflective teachers can look at why their lesson failed and not give up on the lesson, but re- retweak it, readjust it and, and try again the next day. So um, I love that tip. I think that's that's a wonderful one to leave our listeners with. So um, as always, um, please, uh, you know, thank you, Sarah, so much for, for joining us today, for giving of your time, for giving of your knowledge. I think it's very powerful when our um, educators share with each other. And um, to the listeners, please remember that you can't take care of others unless you're taking care of yourself. So make time to relax, to regroup, to refresh, to reset, um, and to show up uh, your best self for your learners. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we'll see you next time. For more OEA professional learning opportunities, visit our webpage at grow.oregoned.org.